Welcome to the IMDb Journey podcast, where we break down every movie from the top 250 and give our thoughts, our reviews, and any general discussion along the way. My name is Daniel Henderson, and this podcast is best served with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Not going to do it? (laughs) And I'm Dean. (laughs) We'll stop it. And I'm Dean Jeffrey, and you're an old friend, Hendo. Perhaps I'll have you over for dinner. Uh, No, I'll pass. Thank you very much. Just like usual. (laughs) (laughs) And today we'll be breaking down the 1991 psychological thriller, The Silence of the Lambs. Dean, good to see you again, mate, on this ridiculously hot day down here in Melbourne, Australia. It is ridiculous. It is currently 32 degrees, and as I drove over here, it started pouring with rain. It is typical Australian summer weather. I am sitting here sweating. Yes. (laughs) Certainly... It's hot out there, but to come in here and sit down here with you, it gets ridiculous. Oh, with me especially. <laughs> it gets quite steamy in these sessions. <laughs> uh, how's your week been, mate? Yeah, not bad, mate. Pretty uneventful. What about you? Well, my day my day was anything but uneventful. What, uh, what, what happened? Getting What's up, wrong now? Getting up to go to work this morning, uh, get up and go to the car, and the battery's dead. Like, oh, this is rough. I'm going to have to take the, uh, the family car. Because, you know, i got to get to work. But yep. kids got to get to school somehow. So, I wake her up at like 5.30 in the morning. I'm like, okay, I'm taking the car. I'll come back before school and we'll, you know, drop the kids off. And you can drop me back off at work. Because I'm like five minutes down the road from work. Okay, yep. So, I get to work and I look at the roster like, what are we doing this morning? And I realize I'm the only manager on. So, I, ta- I cannot leave the store. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> like, what do I do? And I just made the choice. No one, was at, no one was at work yet to just run home, like get back in the car, get home, wake everyone up, get in the car, you're taking dad to work for like quarter oh, to six in the morning. Those poor kids. Those poor kids indeed. And uh, yeah, that was my morning. Very, very eventful. And, and like, it may not sound like much and it may not actually physically be much going to work, coming back, waking people up and then starting your day a bit later than usual. But it puts your whole oh, yeah. whole day out. Yeah, I had plans like to get there at a certain point, and and my plans definitely got pushed back this, today. It's not just that, but like if I was to have something happen to me like that, it would just piss me off all day. Oh yeah, I would be in a mood. I was already in a mood when the battery was flat. I'm like, you gotta be fucking joking me. But you know, push on. So is your car working now? I haven't had time for that. I come in from work and started a podcast. <laughs> Deal with it tomorrow. <laughs> Are you starting early tomorrow? <laughs> I can just see you getting up, 5.30, back sitting in your car, trying to... Tra- oh, yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> Kira. Go take the car. <laughs> All right, Hendo, what are we doing today? Well, Dean, after the breakdown, we're going to be looking at the answers that you, the listeners, gave to us on our question of the week, which is, what is your favorite serial killer movie? Which is also our top five of the week. We're also going to be looking at our final four in our best 1940s film tournament, as well as looking at the results of our latest Pod V Pod X with Billy and Topher from We Watch The Thing. Nice. Lots going on. And then after that, we'll find out what movie we're going to be watching next. And we're actually going to be doing something a little different this week. So stay tuned for that. Give me the update. All right, Hendo, what's been going on with the IMDb Top 250 list? Not a lot this time around. Let's take a quick look at the Top 100 here. The Pianist has moved to 38 over The Untouchables. Man, I always forget how high that movie is. It's very high. Yeah, 38. Jeez. Uh, this new trailer must have got some uh, buzz going because The Lion King has gone to 46, taking over Gladiator. <laughs> we also see that Dangle has dropped from 80 to 82, bringing up Amadeus and Requiem for a Dream. 2001 A Space Odyssey has gone up to 87 over Three Idiots and Amelie. That's what's happened in the top 100. Not a whole lot happened after that. How's Bohemian Rhapsody going? Stayed in the same spot. Really? Actually, it dropped one spot. It's now at 124. Fair enough. 
Uh, in terms of other 2018 films, A Star is Born is now out of the list. Shattered. Okay. <laughs> we see that Gangs of Wasapah, this will, this will be fun for you, has actually gone back into the danger zone from 239 to 247. Ah, nice. <laughs> and out of the list is Winter Sleep, and the movie that's taken that spot is Beauty and the Beast. So that is your update for this fortnight. The recent live action. No, no, no. The animation that oh. keeps hovering around that 250 era. Fair enough. All right, before we get into our breakdown of The Silence of the Lambs, please be aware we will be spoiling it from the jump, so if you don't want to hear about that, please stop listening. That's right, so we're going to take a quick break here, give you a couple of promos from some awesome podcasts out there, and we'll be back on the other side with The Silence of the Lambs. Hi, this is Dustin. And Brianna. We're a couple who love all things Disney. We decided to sit down twice a month to discuss and analyze a variety of Disney films and topics with a grown-up's perspective and an adult sense of humor. Dishing Disney will give film reviews with the memories of a child filtered through an adult frame of mind. We've noticed some things about our beloved Disney movies that we didn't pick up on as kids, and now we want to talk about them. Plus, we'll do a bonus top five episode every month where we make our ultimate lineups regarding the topic of the day. So wish upon a star, give a little whistle, and be a part of our world as we explore the wonderful world of Disney together. This is Dishing Disney. Hey, Jim, what are you doing this week? Uh, it's pretty much the same thing I do every week. I, I talk to you. That's true. We do talk every week. Yeah, and about some weird, dumb stuff. Like, what if everything was a stupid movie cliche? Or, you know, like that when we accidentally started that Dave Franco uh, fan club called Dave Franco's Dream Boys? Right, or when we tr- we talked about get-rich-quick schemes that all involved goats? I like that. Um, can people hear us talk about these things? Yeah, they can. We actually do a podcast about them, uh, and you can get them anywhere, like iTunes, Stitcher, all the podcast apps. Nice. So you can subscribe to the Jupiter Boys from Wadolfa Shark Media today and listen to us talk? Yes, you can. Why doesn't everybody do that? I don't know. The Jupiter Boys. We definitely won't text your uncle. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, She'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. So, The Silence of the Lambs, released in 1991, starring Anthony Hopkins, Jodie Foster, Ted Levine. Scott Glenn! Anthony Heald? No. Scott Glenn, though. All right, Scott Glenn. We can throw him in the mix. Do you know him from anything? The name is very familiar, probably because it's so generic, actually. Scott Glenn. (laughs) People with two first names. Hey, hey. (laughs) Stop it now. (laughs) Um, No, I know Scott Glenn from Vertical Limit. Is that the, uh, like, the mountain climbing yeah. with Chris O'Donnell yes yeah I haven't seen it I saw it at cinemas it was uh, I mean it looks good on the big screen and I was very young when I saw it so I quite enjoyed it yeah and imagine those type of films that you would go see at the cinema when you're that 12 to 15 era yeah. they'll all be phenomenal for you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you get those in your mind like oh that was so great I definitely don't want to watch it now though I mean it stars Chris O'Donnell so <laughs> well so does Batman and Robin fair point yep so this was directed by Jonathan Demi rest in peace do you know what else he did Philadelphia. What else? 
Mancurian Candidate. Mancurian? Is, uh, is that what it's called? Manchurian Candidate. I don't know. I've never seen it. I've seen the original. It's really good. I haven't seen the uh, the new one, the, the remake. But I have seen Philadelphia. You've seen Rachel getting married as well, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I haven't seen that. It's forgettable. Is Philadelphia in the top 250? No. Very good film. Haven't seen it. What? Yeah, one of those blips on the uh, the, the watch list. Wow. Yeah, keep that uh, in mind for when you're yeah, in a movie. I've got, yeah, I've got to keep that in mind. <laughs> when I need to give you a movie next, remember Philadelphia. If not, I'll remember it for you. You're like, I'm going to give you a terrible film. You said, you said Philadelphia. <laughs> so this had a budget of about $19 million. Hold on. So you haven't seen any other film by Jonathan Demme? If you're just going, did he do any other films besides those, these four that we just mentioned? None of note. Then probably no. Wow. It's embarrassing. How can I come back to that? You can't. <laughs> Move on. Yeah, budget of $19 million. Apparently, it actually made back its budget in the very first week of release. Yeah, ended up with a gross in America of just under $131 million and was the fourth highest of the year. Do you know the three that were higher than it? You know I don't. Well, I don't know that. You can at least guess one. 1991. Okay, then. It's actually Beauty and the Beast, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Prince of Thieves? Really? Yeah, it was big. Big film. Wow. Yeah. I didn't think it would be financially massive. Yeah, pretty big. Second for the year in America. But worldwide, this film grossed just under $273 million and was fifth for the year. The other three were still better than it. What was the other film? Oh, my God. You know I have no idea. <laughs> but you should, you should have a guess. You love this film, by the way. As in five-star love it? I think it might be. Four and a half, at least. I think it could be a five for you, though. When did Groundhog Day come out? It's not that. I, I wasn't saying it was. I was just going off Yeah, on I'm a trying to cover the fact I didn't know what year it came out. completely unrelated note. <laughs> it was actually Hook. Oh, I don't think I five-star Hook. No, you I, don't do, five I do hook? love Hook. Though. Four and a half, though. Sure. At least. Sure. At least. Bang on about it. So, bang a ring. You bang on bang 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 on about it so much. <laughs> so, this film, five Oscars. Yes. And it is one of only three movies to ever nab all of the so-called Big Five, which is Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Actress in a Leading Role, and Best Screenplay. That's right. Do I have to ask you what are the other two? Would you have known without having looked it up? I would have definitely known One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and it might have taken me a bit to get... Oh, he's looking at notes. He still doesn't know. It Happened One Night was the other one, which I... Have only it happened heard one of. night. See, it takes me a bit. I have only heard of because of this little fact. So, And I've seen that film. It's on the top 250. Really? Yes, it is. Is it worthy? We'll leave my thoughts for another day on that one, shall we? I did see that it was nominated for two other Oscars. What were they? Uh, best Editing and Best Sound. I suppose I didn't get Best Editing. And Best Sound. Sounds great. Sound is good. Am I assuming that uh, JFK won Best Editing? Do you know that? Yes, you are assuming that. That's right, and I'll stick to that assumption. <laughs> okay. So, with 24 minutes and 52 seconds of screen time, Anthony Hopkins' performance in this movie is the second shortest to ever win an Academy Award for Best Actor, with David Niven in the 1958 Separate Tables beating him at 23 minutes and 29 seconds. Yeah, and honestly, I was really surprised when I read that, because I had always heard the trivia was that he had the shortest amount of screen time for that. So, yeah, that was it was interesting for me to read that it was the second shortest. Maybe it's the shortest in comparison to the total runtime of the film, because back in the 50s, they probably ran for like half an hour. I mean, I think half an hour is a stretch. <laughs> Probably ran for 23 minutes and whatever seconds it was. <laughs> 39 seconds. <laughs> the camera was ran, just ran on for 40 him seconds because the, the one second was the fade out. <laughs> um, what do you think of him being nominated in the leading role I, as opposed to the supporting? It's actor? a stretch. It should be supporting. It should be. Yeah. 
he's not the main person in this film. He's not like he he's supporting Jodie Foster. Like it's it's a supporting role. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do agree. It's just I think it shows how memorable and pivotal and massive his role in this film is that even though we do barely see him, when we see him, my God, it's so massive, do you know? Yeah. Still should be supporting. Yeah, it should. I mean, you look at, um, you know, Heath Ledger's Joker. That's a supporting role. Now, that, yeah. that's more of a role than Hannibal Lecter. Exactly. Because, like, I mean, Hannibal Lecter is not even the, the main villain. No. He's not even the subject of what our main character is, you know, researching and trying to solve. She's not trying to catch Hannibal Lecter. She's trying to catch someone else. He's just at the side helping her. Yeah, exactly. The epitome of a supporting role. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So, Gene Hackman actually bought the rights to the novel. Very random. Yeah, he did plan to direct the film and play either Lecter or Jack Crawford, but after he saw a clip of himself in Mississippi Burning at the Academy Awards, he felt a bit uneasy about I taking mean, violent roles. I mean, what is this? Had he not watched the movie? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, that's what I look really- like? <laughs> Man, I'm losing hair. <laughs> uh, I mean... What what a strange he's such a strange man, Gene Hackman. How with p- such an with such a decent career to retire after Welcome to Mooseville. Probably could have done some one more movie after that just to, you know, cement the legacy. Was it Welcome to Mooseville? I have not. It's, I've it's, never heard of that movie. It is a ridiculous film with Ray Romano and him about how they're these two like political people trying to become the mayor of this really small town, like like with beavers and bloody dams and like in Can- Can- Canada, Canada somewhere, something, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, that's his last one. You know, that's probably he's looking at him, that's it. Stop this! I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I did see that when Anthony Hopkins' agent called him to tell him he was sending him a script for a movie called The Silence of the Lambs. He actually thought it was a kids' film. I mean, I don't know. It's so hard because you know, like we know. The Silence of the Lambs is a horror film. We hear those words. We equate it with, you know, thrilling and all the silence, like, ooh, scary. But, I mean, really, The Silence of the Lambs, yeah, exactly, could vary. I looked at it and went, lambs, farm, probably farm, kids' film. It's actually lucky that Anthony Hopkins ended up getting the role because he was not directed Demi's first choice for it. He actually wanted Sean Connery to play Hannibal Lecter. Terrible. Terrible pick. Oh, what a different movie it would uh, be. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. And in preparation for this role, Anthony Hopkins actually studied serial killers very intensely, including visiting prisons and even sitting in on various gruesome court proceedings. And it clearly worked for him because despite, or as well as winning the Oscar, obviously, AFI also ranked Hannibal Lecter as the number one villain of all time. What do you say to that? I have no issue with it at all. Me too. Like, I, I wouldn't say I agree with it. I haven't done a top villains yeah. list of all time or anything, but he's a worthy... If someone said... If, you know, hearing this, there's no objection from me. If, yeah, someone said, name a bunch of iconic movie, movie villains. Yeah, he's probably going to get at least rattled off in the top five, prob- probably for me. Hmm. Yeah. Again, like you, I haven't done a villains list, but he would surely be very, very high up there, especially after watching it this time. Yes. The AFI actually also ranked Clarice Starling as the number six hero of all time. See? Now, this I could have a problem with. That's an issue. Why do you say that? I mean, she's just not as like an iconic 
hero. Like you think of heroes out there. I don't know. It's, is it because that she's like a cop, like an FBI cop? I don't think it's the profession. I think it's more that she's not exciting. She's not exhilarating to watch. She gives a very controlled and subdued performance. You know, if you talk about the greatest heroes of all time, like I know for me, my mind would personally wander to very extroverted heroes. Examples. Putting you on the spot. How's Don't look at my posters. Luke Skywalker. You bastard. <laughs> Indiana Jones. <laughs> Captain America. <laughs> do you know what I mean, though? Yeah, like, I do. They're I do. all very big, bold characters, and that's not her character in this. Yeah. No, fair enough. So this film was actually selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry in December of 2011. Yeah, you can definitely see why. Just back to Jodie Foster. She's actually said it was her favourite role she's ever done. I know what you're thinking, like, what what else is in contention? <laughs> Elysium. <laughs> Panic Room. The Accused. Taxi Driver? Have we done Jodie Foster on the uh, IMDb known for quiz? No. Hmm. I don't think we can now. <laughs> Since you just said it, everyone's going to be... I am, All the upcoming guests are going like, to get on to Jodie Foster's IMDb uh, page. We'll test to see if they actually listen. <laughs> the next one I'll do Jodie Foster yeah, and it'll be none of them it'll be all four movies we've never heard of <laughs> did you see who else was considered for the role of Clarice Starling Julianne Moore <laughs> <laughs> you know I actually have never seen Hannibal and I had no idea that Julianne Moore actually played Clarice that is ridiculous says the guy I haven't seen it either oh I was gonna say <laughs> actually I think I remember talking to you recently you didn't even know there was a Manhunter, did you? Yes, I did. I don't think you did. You think wrong. I knew there was a Manhunter. Mm. Directed by Michael Mann. Yeah. Starring Brian Cox, of course. <laughs> Look at you. Look at starring you. the character of Will Graham, who would be later played by Ed Norton in Red Dragon. Who played that character? Ed, yeah, see, I knew Ed, you knew nothing about it. I think no, it was William know. Peterson, wasn't it? I don't even know who that is. The guy from CSI. I never watched CSI. But surely you know the people... Okay, we go. <laughs> Back to Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Um, anyway, it was Michelle Pfeiffer. So Demi had actually worked. Oh my god, I was going to say Michelle Pfeiffer is a joke. Why is that a joke? Because I don't know. They're just like similar. I would argue they are not similar at all, other than the fact that they are both women and roughly the same age, and working in Hollywood and being probably the you know more a-lister group of women working in Hollywood in the early nineties. Other than that, I would say they're not similar at all. I was honestly, when we were rattling off uh, Jodie Foster movies before, I was going to say um, Dangerous Minds is a joke because of the similarities between her and Michelle Pfeiffer. I'm, I'm glad you didn't because that Because then you wouldn't know flopped. how to use that trivia. You couldn't have used have that gone. trivia then, could you? <laughs> Will be the last time. As I was saying, Demi had worked with Michelle Pfeiffer in Married to the Mob, I believe it was, mm-hmm. and campaigned hard for her. Now, I've seen two reasons why it did not end up going to Michelle Pfeiffer. Could be a combination of both. Firstly, I saw that it was because she thought the content was too dark and disturbing. Wasn't this the person who was in Scarface? And secondly, probably more likely, she demanded $2 million for the role. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the cherry on top. This movie is just way too dark. $2 million. And with an average of 8.6 over 1.1 million ratings, it's currently sitting at number 23 on the list. Very high. Very high indeed. All right, Hendo, you got a plot summary for us this week? I do. Courtesy of our good friends over at IMDb, a young FBI cadet must receive the help of an incarcerated and manipulative cannibal killer to help catch another serial killer, a madman who skins his victims. Mm, Well said, well said. 
All right, Dean, let's get into it here. We get an opening shot of Jodie Foster's Clarice Starling running an obstacle course for her FBI training. Yeah, it's such a great setup here for her. We see her literally, the first thing we see from her, running uphill, which pretty much sums up her position in life, in particular in the FBI being a young female in a very male-dominated environment. Yeah, and you do get a lot of references to that along the way here in the film. Like you said, this does set up this character quite well here. She's fit, she's committed, she's determined, she's willing to work hard. And through that extent, we already like and respect her. Yeah, which is amazing because all we've seen her do is run a training montage. Yeah. Run a training course in the form of a montage. In fact, it's not really a montage. montage. She's just running. She's just running it. Yeah. But I did like the way how she's not looking her best. You know, like she's sweating up a storm here in tracky dacks. And she walks into her boss, Jack Crawford's office, and she's got no, like, shame about it. You know, no self-consciousness that she stinks and she's wet from doing this. Yeah, that's she's not what just, she's about. No, it's not. Yeah. And I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, like, it's good that it sets all this up as well. I think it just shows a lot of confidence in her character. That's probably a better way of putting it. Yeah, Absolutely. I did see that the production received full cooperation from the FBI as well, as they saw it as a potential recruiting tool to hire more female agents. Makes sense. It does. So she's waiting in the office there, and you see her looking at the wall. Yeah, and you see all the stuff on, you know, <laughs> Buffalo Bill, Bill Skin's fifth victim, all that sort of stuff. You see all the close-up of these women graphically skinned. I reckon, I don't know, I'm in two minds about this. Do you think that is just always there in his office, or do you think that Crawford may have put them there to have that fresh in her mind when she goes to see Hannibal. Jeez, I didn't even think of it. Uh, I could see your point for that, but you could also see the point for, you know, he's obviously trying to track this killer down and this is his evidence he's keeping on the wall. Yeah. But to be fair, like, what is... I, I, I can see credence to your second point there where he's using this to get her involved here because... This is just photo, like this is just a wall of dead body photos. Like, what is this helping? How is this helping his cause in catching the killer? Exactly, he's not standing there reading newspaper articles. Yeah, there's none it? of those like ropes attaching to different places on a map. Oh, I wish that. there was. And also, like, she's been summoned to his office. He's yeah. not there. Yeah, like he knows that she's going to go in there. What's she gonna do? Well, have she's a look gonna, around. Yeah, she's gonna have a look around. She's gonna see this massive wall of Buffalo Bill material. So mm, very clever. Well, that's that's what I got from it. But without any dialogue here, you get the drive of the movie. You know, serial killer, lots of dead bodies, and like I said, even that simple little Bill Skins fifth it gives you all you need to know what's yeah. coming up. But we get our conversation here with Mr. Jack Crawford. Again, you get more set up in regards to Clarice and what she'll be doing. I really like the back and forth shots of their faces. Yeah. But the way the camera is shot is is really good. Yeah. Demi uses this technique many, many times in this film where he has characters look directly into the camera and their head takes up almost the entire screen. Conversely, when we see Clarice, she's often looking slightly off camera. Just a little slightly off, yeah. And when you get Crawford talking directly to the camera here, it really does feel like it increases the feeling of discomfort in the scene, the discomfort that Clarice would be feeling. And we even see Clarice in the very next shot. She's averting her gaze. She's fidgeting. She's uncomfortable with what she's being presented with here. Well, I did read that Demi actually set this up so that when all the males are talking in this film... You're, the camera is, he's at, they're actually looking right at the camera. So it's, you're feeling it from Clarissa's point of view. Whereas when Clarissa's talking, like you said, it's slightly off. So it's not from their point of view. So you get more involved with her character and you identify with her more. Yeah, exactly. I like his line. You spook easily, Starling. 
because it sets up for us, the audience, and for Clarice as a character, that what she's about to encounter is frightening, you know, and it does build tension when he starts talking and he's brought in this character of Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter. Yeah, I love the great cut between the convos here where they're talking about Hannibal Lecter and then they're like, oh, what's he like? And it cuts to Dr. Yeah, Jim, you know, as he's, though he's answering yeah, the question. Yeah, he's answering that, that question, Jack- yeah. Perfect transition into the next scene here. Oh, he's a monster, a psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. Dr. Chilton, what a... What a slimy... Slimy. I had sleaze back. (laughs) (laughs) He's slimy, this guy. And even even this first scene with her, and we get a lot in this film where, as we've said before, it is very much about a woman in a male's world. And even... And so many of these men hit on her. Yeah. And even this doctor, straight away, he talks about, like, oh, the nightlife in this town, you know, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And it's like, man, I've she never just- had anyone as pretty as you come around yes. here. Yes. Like, come on. Like, she's just trying to do just, her yeah, job. Just ease off, mate. No shame. We'll have to start calling him Do- Mig soon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to call him Dr. Chilltown. <laughs> oh, that's good. But now we get them walking down into the cell here. They're doing, they're really doing an amazing job here of establishing just how much of a scary bloke this Hannibal is. Just- this large amount of specific rules they need, he's saying that you need to be adhering to here. The horror story of tearing apart that nurse. Fantastic decision not to show the pictures and just to leave it up to your imagination. Show what pictures? The pictures he shows Clarice of what oh, Hannibal okay. did yep. to the nurse. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I think what works so well for this first scene, this first meeting between Clarice and Hannibal is that it's not what you expect. You know, like when you've built up this monster in your mind and when she finally gets to him and walks past all these freaks, and I mean filthy freaks. Oh, this is great. This 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 POV shot of her walking towards this chair and seeing all the, these mental people. You you see these people and you're like, these are like some rough bastards. Yeah, what but, and, he's, and he's yeah. been built up as yeah. the worst. What's going to be at the end of this tunnel here? So when she finally sees him and we as the audience see him, we just see this small-looking man, and he speaks so politely to her. How good is it that he's actually looking right at her when she walks around the car? Like, he knows where to look. Like, he's looking at the camera, and you're like, oh, God, this guy is, like, on point, and you just get that... Good morning. Like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great decision by Demi here to have it not be bars blocking him. It is really, ma- really good. To make it a glass wall, it just increases... The intimacy between the characters. Yeah, it wouldn't have been as good if you just had the steel bars in between them every time you're going on that back and forth shot. Yeah. So, but uh, Anthony Hopkins here is Hannibal Lecter. My God, this guy is absolutely brilliant in this movie. Yeah. And I think before you alluded to something along the lines of, especially after this watch, I would put him as one of the greatest villains. I think, I, am I overstepping it here? You're implying that you appreciated his performance more this time? Yeah, because since doing this podcast, we've been... Watching a lot of like these movies very intently, like compared to the last time I watched it, which would have been, I don't know, five years ago or something like that. I was just watching it. I was just like some guy. I was enjoying movies. Now that I'm actually getting involved with the film and like really studying their like the acting, I'm, yeah. and I'm watching them like even they're just these little tiny inflections that he does, these little facial ticks. I'm like, my god, like he's incredible. He's fantastic in this film, and I agree with what I was alluding that you were thinking before, he is so much better than I remembered him. Yeah. And I already <laughs> I already had in my mind that, you know, he's renowned as one of the greatest performances, 
And I already went in expecting that, and I was exceeded in my expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, his portrayal of this intelligent yet completely insane cannibal serial killer—it's yeah, it's legendary. Like he's barely, like we said, he's barely in the film, but he steals absolutely every scene he's in along the way, even the ones he's not in. Explain to me how he steals scenes that he's not in. Because they're always talking about him. It's always about Lecter. Fair enough. I like that he looks at her ID for an instant, and it's just like it says it expires in one week. <laughs> One of Crawford's, are you? <laughs> yeah, did you know that he he tried to voice Hannibal Lecter as a combination of uh, Trimmer Capote and Catherine Hepburn? Catherine Hepburn, remind me, is she played by Kate Blanchett in The Aviator? Is that Catherine Hepburn? I think it is. So, Catherine Hepburn- You answered your own question. <laughs> I th- I'm pretty sure it is. She has a very loud, obtuse voice, but Capote, he talks like this. Yeah, mix those together. That's That's not- that's not something you can mix together. You, I, I think that that Capote kind of works with his voice. I think here. Capote works. I don't get the Hepburn. I haven't seen The Aviator, and I don't think I've seen like, uh, oh god, I don't think I've seen any Catherine, Catherine Hepburn film. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Isn't that Aub- Aub- Aubrey, Audrey. Oh, I don't Aubrey, uh, Aubrey or Audrey, Audrey, Audrey. It's I think Audrey. It's Audrey. <laughs> it is Audrey. <laughs> Audrey Hepburn. Our, our knowledge of the golden age of cinema it's uh, lacking. So yeah, yeah. not so golden. No. What? I just can't believe we didn't know Audrey Hepburn's name. <laughs> I think that's bad. Is there more Hepburns? Is there is there Audrey and Catherine and that's it? I think so. Well, if, if we can't remember Audrey's name, we're not going to remember the third. And honestly, the only reason I know Catherine Hepburn is because of the aviator. Fair enough. <laughs> so when I think Catherine Hepburn, I really am just thinking of Kate Blanchett. <laughs> but yeah, this intro to both Lecter and Clarice here. It's fantastic. Like this dialogue is so captivating. It's it's nerve wracking. Both of these actors are on their A game here with this the perfect facial expressions and reactions to each and every line delivered here. Yeah, I think Clarice. Like, yes, we know Hannibal is very intelligent. I think Clarice is exceptional in what she is doing here. So she is trying to get on Hannibal's good side and get him to do this survey. That's why she thinks she's been sent there. And the way she phrases things to Hannibal is. Just brilliant. Like, she says that, you know, she paints herself as small, as a little young, you know, person that's there to learn. Yeah. You know, and if he decides she is worthy of it, could he help her? But so he, it really, he, he it really, sees through it. He sees through it. It really puts him in a position of power. I don't yeah. think he does see through it. He does. Like, oh, no, no. You were doing so well, and you, you you stuffed it up by doing that. No, when she starts bringing up the, the, um, the actual survey, that's when yeah. it goes to crap. But when she's... Just in her regular banter, I feel like she really knows to play to his ego. Yeah, I did hear that Jodie Foster said that in the meeting that we were just talking about, Anthony Hopkins uh, was mocking her of her southern accent, of course, and uh, she was horrified that the reaction was genuine. She thought that he was, like, being genuine, that he was mocking her, her accent, and actually she felt personally attacked. But she later did thank uh, Anthony Hopkins for generating such the honest reaction they got on film. It's fantastic. This... This perfect summation of Clarice's character by Hannibal after only a few short moments. It was like, you know what I was thinking of? I was thinking Sherlock Holmes. Does he call it, what does he call it? A rube? A rube. You're, you're yeah. a rube. What's a rube? I don't know. It's definitely rube, though. It's definitely offensive. Surely. Surely. It must, it's not nice. <laughs> so, like, you know what? You're a rube. Well, thank you. He absolutely tears shreds off her here. And even though she's hurt by it, what I love is that she doesn't respond in fear. Even though she's scared. Yeah. She tells him, she comes back at him. She tells him to point that observation back at himself. Or is he too afraid of? And I think that it's this sort of behavior where it's honest 
and it's not fearful and it's respectful all at the same time is what makes him respect her because she is being real with him. She's not someone who's just trying to get inside Hannibal's head for, you know, academic reasons. She's genuine in what she's saying. So when she's hurt by him and comes back with it, I think he really, as I said, really respects her for that because he's probably not used to it. Yeah, she's not backing down. She's not doing what he thinks she's going to do with, you know, the insult he's flinging at her. Yeah. And then, of course, you get the great iconic quote. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. And just that look of subtle terror on Clarice's face just says it all. And obviously the, the fast slurping was an improvisation from Hopkins himself. And we get this great sort of goodbye from him here. Like, he's done with her at this point. Yeah. Fly back to school now, little starling. Fly, fly, fly. Fly, fly, fly. But she's leaving and... Oh, my God. This is so gross. Oh. <laughs> I had not... There's no way the first time I watched this, I knew what that was. Oh, I can't remember this. So when it happened, I'm like, whoa, holy shit. Yeah. And, but the thing is, it actually gets Hannibal to call her back. He calls her back, like, come back, and he gives her, like, a, a shred of clues or something as to go and look for. Because, you know, he doesn't like what... Was it Miggs? Miggs. Miggs. He doesn't like what he just did to her and yeah. subsequently talks him into killing himself for this reason. Yeah. So, yeah, lucky that actually happened because uh, the case might not have continued. <laughs> I love his little line. I don't think I don't think Miggs could manage again, even though he is crazy. Go now. <laughs> like, hurry up before he throws more cum at you. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, and as she's running out of the place here, we get a little flashback of her when, with her dad when she was young. Just a quick one here, but you can tell something. You obviously can tell something has happened to her father, most likely, for which has traumatized her. I did not remember these flashbacks. No, at I didn't all. either. It actually, when I saw it, I actually questioned whether or not they were in a version I watched. Now I haven't seen that there's multiple versions of it and a version without them, so there must have been. But I'd completely forgotten about this. The the flashback later on. How long did it take you for to realize that that was actually a flashback? The one where she's when it's walking down the funeral because she's in the funeral at the time. And it's played like she, her herself in the present, was walking down the middle of the chairs. Only to when you get up to the front, it's the the dad, and and now she's a kid. I don't think I realised until did did she kiss him? I think she was like leaning in, and then it like Clarice, and like it, it, it you know it uh, snaps out of it. I got it just when because I'm pretty sure they said that it was a female that was it, like that was that the funeral was for. And so when you get up close, you see the male. I'm like, oh, that's that's yeah. obviously the dad. Okay. But we get a little tiny training montage here. Yeah, and before that, just before we jump into that montage, I do like the cut that it goes from previously where we get her crying at the car. And apparently she was advised to do this by an FBI agent who said, sometimes you just got to do it. You just got to yeah. let the emotion out and that's a good time to do it. So we see her being really emotional here and I don't want to say crying's weak, but it's definitely painting her- Of course in- you don't want to say that. Well, I wouldn't publicly say that. That's a, a ridiculous thing to say. But we do see her here being vulnerable. Maybe that's a better word. Being vulnerable, followed immediately by her pointing the gun at the bloody camera. Bang, 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 bang. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're back. Yeah, we're back to her. <laughs> she's had a little cry. Now we're back. And like you said earlier, like she's running along here and you get all these five guys running past her. They turn around. They check her out. Like this woman in this man's world, basically. Exactly. We see that she uh, uses a microfish here to look at some old newspaper articles. Microfish. I was going to say, have you Is that ever, what it's called? Have you ever seen or used a microfish? I mean, I've seen it in film. You never seen it in real life? No, have you? Yeah. 
they, I don't know, I, they probably still have them now, but uh, they had them in the libraries, like just your local library. And I used to go to the library every once in a while when I was in my primary school days to pick up some books. And my mum was into like uh, ancestry and all that for a while there. So she would go and check out the microfish on like old family trees. So yeah, I knew what a microfish wow. was. Really? Yeah. So you have a, a good family tree going, do you? I don't know anything about it. I think mum does. That'd be interesting. What's use a microfish or about your genealogy? No, not, not the microfish, the genealogy. I know very little about family past my parents' parents, otherwise known as my grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> like it is, it is so, it is so hot in here. Like, do you remember that Simpsons episode where like Homer's sitting on the couch and he's been sitting there forever, and like he gets up, he's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is me right now. Like, I don't want to move because I just feel I'm just going to tear off this this. Couch. Bloody yeah, chair. I'm, re- I'm reminded of them uh, setting up the tent in front of the fridge and freezer. <laughs> that's, that's what I'd love right now. We should go podcast in front of the fridge. <laughs> I got the idea when I noticed the refrigerator was cold. For the rest of the summer, we can live inside the refrigerator. So we have this conversation here between Crawford and Clarice. I mean, of course, Lecter is playing games with Clarice here. He's describing a place and a name re- register, telling her the name of a place instead of an actual person. Hmm. There's Miss Moffat. Even hearing that he basically talked this Migs guy into killing himself. Which doesn't make any sense. Why? Because it's not possible to swallow your tongue. How do you know? Because I'm not an idiot. This Migs guy looks like he's kind of an idiot. No, I'm not saying only idiots can swallow <laughs> their tongue. I'm saying it's not possible. So, the, the figure of speech swallowing your tongue, it refers to an unconscious person having their tongue muscle relax at the back of their throat and block their airway. It's not actually... So what's to say It's that, not actually swallowing your tongue. So what's to say that he got Migs to knock himself out, hence swallowing his tongue? What's uh, to say he didn't bite his tongue off and swallow it? And why choke? would you choke on that? Be a soft piece of flesh. It'd be delicious <laughs> if you were Hannibal. Not me, though. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> Good save. <laughs> So we get to this storage place here. Yeah, after she's told to look inside yourself. That's right. Even here, just showing the persistiveness of Clarice to go back to her car and get the jack out to get this door open rather than, like, wait to the next day. Mm. And basically, no help from these guys. Oh. <laughs> like, he, he can't help. This guy, he cannot help. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He doesn't like... What was the line? He doesn't like physical labour or something? <laughs> something like that. I would ask my driver to help you, but he detests physical labour. <laughs> No one does. We do it because we have to. Yeah. But she's she's pretty much a badass here, like jacking up this uh, door by herself, sliding under there, like even cutting herself on a nail as well. You get this very ominous music as she's going through the storage room as well. It's, it really sets this uncomfortable mood. Like no one's been in there for a, a decade, I think it was. Eight years. Eight years, close enough. But you still feel like something's just going to be there. Going to jump out yeah. of Yeah. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but do you hear the door close behind her at a certain point? Like, when she gets in the you car- You hear a loud noise, but it's not- I don't think it's the door closing. Okay. She finds a head in a jar as well. Yeah, she does. Pretty gruesome head. It is a gruesome head. And the camera really lingers on it as well. Yes. Yes, Clarice. Fly away, Clarice. Having an old friend for dinner. Where's some haggish? (laughs) (laughs) Why is that not- (laughs) There's so many, so many Sean Connery animal letters. So we're back to Lecter here. Again, as is with every conversation between these two in this movie, fantastic conversation. Even the cue to just take the time to set up this hiding in the shadows, like as the drawer comes out, it ends up being quite deliberate in trying to figure out what this thing in the drawer is, while simultaneously trying to see where Lecter is in the in the cell. Yep. Only for it to be a towel. 
for her to dry off. Which she dabs and then puts it away. What was the point? He's gone to the effort to give you a towel. <laughs> At least you use it, love. I mean, something that isn't even sinister in the slightest is being shown in a sinister manner. Like, it's great. Yeah, it is. Awesome line here, too. That doesn't interest me, Doctor. Frankly, it's it's the sort of thing that Migs would say. Not anymore. <laughs> like, oh! <laughs> great no, delivery, is- great delivery. I mean... Every line yes, Anthony yeah, Hopkins says in this film I know. is great delivery. It does bring up the relationship between Crawford and Clarice here. Yes, he does. And asks if she thinks that Crawford thinks about having sex with her. And these two, Crawford and Clarice, do have this uh, sort of odd, maybe not odd, just unclear relationship. How so? What do you mean? I just mean that most men in this film have hit on her at some stage, and the way Crawford is with her could be blurred. That's all. Yeah. I mean, he's, he is like some sort of, like a tutor, like a father figure kind of person. Yeah, I guess. I just think that it is unclear throughout the film what their relationship is. And at the end, where they do have that handshake, it's a very respectful yeah. um, move. And I think it does cement their relationship as not sexual. Well, explain this to me. Would you have thought of that sexual relationship if Hannibal hadn't said a thing about it? Yes. You would have still thought, oh, is there any sexual tension here? Did you pick up any of that? He's a man. She's a woman. I know men. I was going to say, you're a man, so you would you would think you would think that. Even there, Jodie Foster. Here, you, here is a woman, <laughs> and here is a man. There must be sexual tension in this movie. Correct. Even though he is, like, double her age. I mean, uh, yeah, that when doesn't does matter. that, that doesn't, ma- any <laughs> doesn't matter at all? <laughs> but I feel like if, if Hannibal hadn't said anything about that, I, I wouldn't have thought anything about it. Well, maybe Clarice was in the same boat, where she hadn't even considered exactly. it. Exactly, and that's thing. what he does. He puts a seed in her head. Yeah, he has put a seed in her head. Which begs the question, how do you think Hannibal Lecter would have gone in Inception? Can you imagine incepting Hannibal Lecter's mind? That's a movie. <laughs> okay. Good luck with that one. <laughs> but just to move the plot along somewhat, Hannibal does tell Clarice that he will help catch Buffalo Bill if he gets moved to a better facility away from Dr. Chilton. Speaking of Buffalo Bill, we finally get our intro here. We do. We see the night vision straight up as yeah. he's watching the blonde. Catherine. Do you know who this person is? She looked familiar. Yeah. What's she in? Grey's Anatomy. She is that lady? Because yeah. I saw her and I did browse through her filmography a bit, but I didn't. nothing burst out. So she's one of the main characters in the later seasons of Grey's Anatomy. No. She plays... She the heart doctor that comes in when Bert goes? Yeah. Yeah, that's her. Oh God! I thought you were going to have a go at me for knowing way no, too no, much. No, no, no! I know, I know, I know you. I know you like adored that show. Like, hey, in hey, the, hey! In the first, up, in the first, up on the adore the, No, you did. In the first couple of seasons, you were like, "Oh my God, Grey's Anatomy! Oh my God, very, I've got all the DVDs." It, it was my wife's. I swear. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> I have been caught. <sighs> and this is why you never help strangers at night in a van. I mean, yeah. Don't get in the van. So, Buffalo Bill is actually based on three real-life serial killers, one of which is Ted Bundy, who would do this trick to lure women. He would have his hand in a cast and lure women into helping him into his van. Who are the other two? Glad you asked, Hendo. (laughs) The other two are Gary Heidnick, who would keep his victims in a hole in his house, much like Buffalo Bill does. Good old Gazza. And finally, Ed Gain, who would make skin clothes. Suits out of women's skin, who also inspired Leatherface. There's some random people out there, I'll tell you. Oh, there's some messed, messed up people out there. That sounded so erotic. Wow. (laughs) It's odd that you would take it that way. The way you said it. There's some messed up people out there. 
<laughs> Sounded more like Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Tune in next week for Smooth Sounds. <laughs> Some messed up people. Smooth Sounds of the Serial Killer, Volume 1, starring Ed Gein. So Clarice heads out to Virginia. We get some backstory here on what Buffalo Bill's been doing. He leaves them alive for three days, yep. kills them, and then skins them. And we find out that the plan all along was to get Lecter to get involved with Buffalo Bill here yeah. and sending Clarice down there. Yep. This is actually inspired by real-life criminology professor Robert Keppel, who gained help on a serial killer case from Ted Bundy himself. Interesting. Yeah, I thought so. I mean, why... Why wouldn't you? If you want to, you know, understand the mind of a serial killer, it makes sense to try and speak to captured serial killers, doesn't it? You just got to be careful that they don't mind manipulate you. Mind manipulate you. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a superhero power. (laughs) Supervillain power? I say supervillain power. Mind manipulate you. (laughs) Just rolls off the tongue. (laughs) You can see it in like one of those campy cartoons. Careful, he's going to mind manipulate you. (laughs) Before we move away from this uh, little car ride they have here, I loved the profile that Clarice sets up here. Like, we see her really FBIing the shit out of this guy. Like, the way she says, all right, he's probably this age because of this. He's probably a white male because of this. Mm-hmm. All And, like, the reasoning she goes, and they're all right. Yeah, physically strong. Yep. Yeah. It's all, it all makes a lot of sense. And it's good to see Crawford is impressed by it as well yeah. and does give her that you know, verbal pat on the back. It's good. It is good. But they head to the funeral home here. Again, you just get more males just looking at Clarice with disdain. I mean, get the fuck over it. She's in charge here. They, all these cops, they they just look at her like, fucking FBI woman. Yeah, I think it does show how far we've come now. You wouldn't get that now. This, This movie's pretty old now. It's 27 years old. It is, yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. It is. So, this is where the second flashback comes with the, the funeral and, the, yep, and her dead as, father. As we mentioned before. I love it when they're about to do the autopsy and Clarice, in the nicest way possible, just basically tells all the cops to get out. Thank you. You've, had, you, you've done your job. See you later. Some of them are just like, you know, give the begrudging look. Where I did see one of them give the old, fair play. Yep. Good. That was good. As he walks out. Yep. And then they examine the body. I mean, there is so much that an imagination can do here. They don't show this body for a while. So, watching the facial expressions as they're going through it, you don't know what what they're looking at here. Mm. I found it very odd the way she turned around to put on the cream under her nose to try and help prevent the horrid smell. I think because I think because she's she's mentally preparing herself to do this as well. I don't know. I sort of felt like she was just being self conscious with you know putting this thing on her face in front of Crawford. No, I didn't think that at all. I thought honestly that it, you know this is her first dead body. This is going to be pretty traumatizing for her. So she she wants to take a minute mm. and mentally prepare herself for what she's about to see. Yep. And again, this is another example where she's afraid of this. Right. This is a big thing for her. Mm-hmm. But she still does it. She still overcomes it and she pushes on regardless. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can see her getting stronger as she goes here. Yeah, ending up in her seeing something in the mouth that no one else has seen. Yeah, that's a good catch. Which is where we get the reveal of this moth. Which, the importance of the moth, obviously it symbolizes the change that Buffalo Bill is trying to go through. But for me... It's the poster. The poster is this one of the po- most iconic posters it is. ever. It is terrifying yeah. and simple at the same time. It is scary. Like, I remember before I ever saw this film, that video cover at the video store Absolutely. was like, wow, this is like one of the scariest things ever. Like, yeah, I agree with you completely. When I was, you know, what, seven, eight years old and be walking around the local Video Easy or the Blockbuster, mm. 
and you'd see that Silence of the Lambs cover with the the white face and the moth, and you'd and I would see the R rating, which is NC, which is an, which is basically the equivalent of like an NC seventeen for Americans. How old were you? Sorry, seven or eight. Well, that's not possible because it was released in Australia as R in 1991, but in 1993 they actually reclassified it when they brought in the MA15 plus rating. Well, then I probably saw it when I was five. All right, you got to well, with just, that. I'm just trying to keep you honest here. Henry. I remember seeing an R rating on the Silence of the Lambs, and I would like I would oh, I was scared of that. I'm like, yeah. oh my god, this looks like the scariest thing in my life. Yeah, get I away remember, from this. I remember when I was scared of the R rating. Yes, that diamond. <laughs> you're like, oh, I can't watch the that. Diamond that's, R. That's R. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you see all the um, the classification videos, like the, the promos that would come. And, and the R1 was, was Sharon Stone. No, no, no. It was Madonna in the uh, oh, Age Madonna. of Innocence, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. It what was very think, sexual. So, yeah. Yeah, it was the sexual one. Like yeah. MA was the horror one. Yeah. yeah. M was the uh, action. Termi- M was Terminator 2. Yeah. So, what, what, what were they? I'm pretty sure G was the African Queen. There was, a, there was a portion of the African Queen on there. God. PG was Back to the Future Part 3. Especially not some dude it up egg sucking gutter trash. Yep, that was, yep. PG was like the the um the, the swearing without the swearing. swearing. Yeah. <laughs> M was the just the the action violence Terminator Two. Yeah. The Arsenal Vista baby. The MA one. What was that? I can't remember that one. Was it like a Hellraiser or something? Yeah, was it Pinhead or something? It was something like that. Like a weird eye thing going on there. Yeah. And then obviously R was the sexual one. Yeah. The sexual one. Yeah. So when I see R movies, I'm like, like ah, oh, stay away from me. I'm in the wrong section. <laughs> what do you think of this taking the bug to these two bug dudes? Just take a take a breath from what's going on here. There's a little bit of a uh, little bit of fun, a little bit of playing between Clarice and you know, this nerdy bug bloke. Entomologist. I'll take your word for it. But actually, in the book, they actually formed a relationship. The the guy that asked her, that was flirting with her, they actually um, start seeing each other. Thankfully, he was not a bigger character in this film. Thankfully, this finishes here. Because this is arguably the worst scene of the film. Yeah, I was just like, okay, let's get back to Hannibal. Let's get back to Buffalo Bill. I don't care about this moth. Yes. But this is where we get our first, like, roaming through the house shot of Bill's weird as hell house here. Is this where we get the nipple shot? Because if it is, fun fact, that is not a real nipple. That is a prosthetic nipple. I don't know what you're talking about. There's a close-up at one point where he's getting all womanly in his room. No, no, that's later on in the movie. Oh, okay. This is when they're just scrolling through the house, and he's he's sitting there sewing naked, and you're hearing the screams from Catherine down the well. Oh, uh, yeah. As yeah, the yeah. dog's running around the house. Yep, yep. Yeah, that was, uh, that was intense. Going through his house and seeing all the weird shit he's got going on. Doesn't look good for Miss Catherine here. Hmm. But we find out that she's the senator's daughter. And we get this TV report that explains that to us, that this is the senator's daughter. I mean, it's a bit unfortunate, but in all honesty, I don't think Bill gives a shit that it's a senator's daughter. And this is like a now a high-value case that they're going through here. I find it funny how they're talking about the president said at the top of the snow mountain that he was deeply concerned. Like, he's got to address the people, and all he says is that he's deeply concerned while he's skiing off a buddy uh, mountain in the Alps. You didn't even pick up on it? No, I I mean, I'd say I missed it, but I don't even consider it something to miss. There's a little throwaway line there where you've got to get the president's opinion, and and all it says is he's deeply concerned. I didn't care. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Clarice takes this deal back to Lecter here, and he's going to agree to it in exchange for some conversation. We get some nice conversation Quid here. pro quo. Quid pro quo. I said that wrong completely. No, I, crow. I crow. think you said quid pro quo. That's right. <laughs> what do you think of this scene? I mean, it's the third out of four Clarice and Hannibal scenes together. It is 
in the top four scenes of the film. <laughs> I mean, you cannot understate how great these scenes of them together are. They are. They are far and away the best scenes in the movie. And I don't mean that... Like, I had a lot of trouble coming up with a favourite scene in this film, and it's not because, you know, there's not a lot of great scenes. It's just there's so many that are so good. And at the top of the cake here is these incredible interactions between Hannibal and Clarice. Well, I'm pretty sure we know what your favourite scene's going to be now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, this... I mean, it's an amazing scene. We get some more backstory from Clarice. We hear about how her mum was dead already... And her dad died when she was 10. <laughs> and she tells Hannibal that she went and stayed with her mother's cousins, the ranchers on the farm, to which he asks, did the rancher make you perform fellatio? Did he sodomize you? Like, immediately. That's what he goes to. <laughs> like, what is he doing? What's, what's he trying that to- That is just what is running through his mind at <laughs> just, every point. Come on. I know he's been in a cell for eight years, but just tone it down, all right? But honestly, like, it has been a few years since I've seen this, and I didn't remember what the issue was at the ranch. Like, obviously, yeah, the lamb screaming, all that stuff is, um, I remembered. But when he said that, I, before he said that, I, I was actually thinking that too. I was like, was she, like, sexually abused at this ranch? Well, you've already admitted you're prone to immediately thinking of a sexual relationship, even though there isn't one there to begin with. Fair enough. But it is great. We cut to Chilton here, listening to them on the device. What a prick. Well, of course, this guy is- This guy. Yeah. I seriously can't believe, though, that Hannibal would buy this lie, that Clarice would be able to lie, like knowingly lie, to someone like Hannibal and him not pick up on it. Because the whole thing at the start, now I know Crawford wouldn't have really known Clarice well, but he didn't think that she would be able to lie and, you know, beat Hannibal, to trick Hannibal. But she does here. She knowingly is lying to Hannibal here. Does he give off any indication that he knows or doesn't know? I think when they have their next meeting, it's pretty clear he didn't know because he was like, ah, yeah, Anthrax yeah. Island, that's a nice touch, Clarice, or something like that. Yeah, no, nah, fair enough. But you were saying before, like, this this conversation they were having about Clarice's childhood when she's growing up, yep. I love that they don't show it in, like, this flashback that they had just done a couple of times before. It's just her talking. You just get this great acting from Jodie Foster, basically just showing exactly what you need. Yeah, exactly. And it was initially they were going to go to flashbacks. Did you know this? No. Oh, I thought that's why you said it like that. They were initially going to go to flashbacks and show it that way, but once they saw how great the Jodie Foster-Anthony Hopkins dialogue was together, they they just looked at each other and said, well, there's no point. Wow. Nothing okay. will beat that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was watching like, that's really good. They didn't need to go to any flashbacks. Like, this is just perfect. Yeah. Like, this is all you need. They paint a picture very clearly. Yeah. Did you pick up on this shot of the reflection of Lecter? on the glass over Clarice's shoulder. Yep. Oh, that was so good. It's like he's in her ear, like getting into her mind, like that person yeah. on the shoulder. Like that was Ooh. really good shot. Fascinating. Nice. But we're back to Bill here. Again, another iconic line. So many iconic lines in this film. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Oh, it places a lotion in the basket. No, you got with Ted Levine, you gotta get it a little bit a little bit gruffer in there. It puts the lotion on the basket or else it gets the hose again. <laughs> it puts the lotion in the basket. <laughs> but you can see the emotion he's actually going through Billy as she's like pleading with him, like, please I wanna see my mom help and he's like starting to cry. And to the point where he's just he says, Put the fucking lotion in the basket. Like, just do it. He's like, I've had enough. It's a great reveal when he lowers the thing down and the light shines oh, on the wall yeah. and you see the bloody scratches from people trying to escape previously. Yeah. And she realizes 
if she didn't already, how fucked she is. Yeah, here. it was at that point. Yeah. No, I wasn't doing it. I swear you to were, God. No. and I was actually <laughs> thinking about it today when you did it last. It's at that point he realised. I did that in the very first episode. What was it? Ellis, when he realised that his terrorist thing didn't work. At that point, Ellis realised he fucked up. He fucked Bang! up. <laughs> I wasn't going to do it then, I swear to God. Okay. But yeah, we just got to find out how much of a nutcase Buffalo Bill is here when he just, just, just joins in the screaming fun with her. Oh yeah, that was weird. <laughs> you ever tried that tactic with the kids? I probably have. I have, I definitely have. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past myself Does- to just snap and scream at them. It doesn't work. Just, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, you scream at them, but I mean, like, they yell and you just yell. Like, not say anything, just start yelling, trying to over-yell yeah. them. It doesn't really get anywhere. <laughs> so we've got Chilton here talking to Lecter, basically telling him that the deal's a piece of shit. He is a piece of shit. Jesus. <laughs> this yes, Chilton he is. guy is so bad. But he's not even listening to Chilton, though. All he is, he's just staring at his pen. Yeah. And you're like... Okay. <laughs> yeah, you are like no K. Well said. Actually, while I was watching the scene, I just had to think, who strapped Hannibal Lecter into this thing? Whose job is it to get him to... St- hey, can you just stand there while I put some put some straps here on you? Mm, good point. But they'd get into the airport here. How good is this mask that he wears? It's not just the mask. It's everything. It's the white jumpsuit. It's the trolley that they wheel him yeah. around on. Just the, yeah. the eyes, just his eyes, the look he gives people. That's so great. And it's so, it's like, <laughs> I know we say iconic a lot, but yeah. this look here is really, really iconic. Originally, Hannibal was actually going to be in the prison orange jumpsuit color. Yeah. But Hopkins had it changed as he felt the pure white was more cold and clinical and definitely more suited to the character. Apparently, it also went hand in hand with his fear of dentists and their white coats. Okay. Whatever uh, induces fear, I guess. Yes, indeed. I do love this conversation with Hannibal and the senator here. Before that, yep, you get that they get the two cops to come to pick him up, and you get Chilton there going, Where, "Where's my Where's my pen?" As he's <laughs> going to sign, and you just see Hannibal like, do, 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 like <laughs> subtle little look. Yeah, but the, the talk with the senator. Tell me, senator, did you nurse Catherine yourself? What? Did you breastfeed her? Now wait a minute. Yes, I did. Toughened your nipples, didn't it? Oh, son of a bitch. And he's being nice to her up until that point. And he, like, he changes and... But he does it with Clarice as well. Like, he's engaging in a personal conversation with her and then just spats out some insulting nonsense to them. I mean, to say... He just starts going on this tangent. He's like, you know, if they say if someone, um, like, loses a limb, they can still feel it tickle. And then he just... Just play it. Tell me, Mom. When your little girl is on the slab, where will it tickle you? Yeah, tell me mum. I love that he calls her mum. I know, it's great. <laughs> Even her reaction. Take this thing back to Baltimore. It's a good reaction. Yes. But then he starts yelling. He yells the name out, doesn't he? Yeah, he quickly rattles off a, a bunch of information about mm. Buffalo Bill. Yeah. So Clarice actually sneaks in to see Hannibal here. Well, because, because Chilton is too busy talking to the media, yeah. telling how he's the one who's about to Saying solve his name. My case. name is, yeah. 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 I can't reveal his name, but my name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But because they did this dodgy deal, they've been like shut out of this whole case now. But she sneaks in to see good old Hannibal for one last time. One last time. And as we've alluded to, this is easily my... Excellent! Play it again. Excellent! I'm not surprised. This scene in particular, because it is a decent length scene here between them, in particular, when she, when Jodie Foster is recanting this story about 
the lambs and have they stopped screaming and she's so she was scared to look all this stuff it is phenomenal it really yeah i was originally gonna have the first meeting as my favorite but nah, I, this, this i saw that this yeah you're right this is the peak of their of their relationship because she's, she's this is her most vulnerable that she's opening up to him about this story yeah. like the facial expressions of like diabolical terror on Lecter and the suppressed sadness of Clarice as she's revealing the story about how she walked in on all these lands being slaughtered and how she can still hear them in her sleep sometimes and she just wants them to be silenced and how this relates to her wanting to save Catherine it's all great stuff here and like those those near like orgasmic reactions from Lecter when he's mm. like when he takes Lecter thank you Clarice like mm. he's he loves it he just soaks all this in like it is fantastic those massive close ups on their faces so close up oh Hannibal is staring that, at us yeah that look, very that heart, like he's kind of looking down, the light yeah. shining down on him. Even like the little inflections he does, like that, Kavitsa. Like, he, he, like the, all these little intricacies that Hoffigans does in this film. It's, oh, it's, yeah. it's incredible. Incre- it's incredible. Yeah. People will say we're in love. <laughs> but because she opens up to Hannibal here, he gives her the information. He he hands her off that psych evaluation, whether that that document that she gave to him hmm. a while ago. Had it not been her actually giving him some openness about her, she might not have got that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Quid yeah. pro quo. We got this quick little scene of Clarice leaving the airport here. What do you think of the the gentle little touch when they when he she grabs the document off him? Sexual. Do you think it was sexual, or do you think it's like a, a respect thing, like with Crawford later? Like, yeah, I think I think it does mirror the Crawford handshake later. Yeah, I don't think it. Well, even though it, you know that soft, gentle rub of her finger would normally be considered a more sexual act, I don't think it is. I think it is a sign of respect and admiration to a point. Like even when she finds out later that he's escaped. She's. She says that I don't think he's going to come after me. He would. He would uh, think of it as rude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And throughout the movie, she actually, apart from the first instance of referring to him as Hannibal the Cannibal, she only ever calls him Doctor Lecter. She uh, only ever calls him Doctor Lecter after this. Yeah, and it is. It does show the respect that she has for him. But what do you think of him drawing pictures of her in the cell? I mean, you draw what you see. You cover what you see. Makes sense. And this next little scene we get. Even though it's just this little scene of her leaving the airport, they make a point to show Guy just walking past her, staring at her, checking her out. Like, once you see it and you look for it, it's everywhere. These guys are so... They just treat her as an object where she... And this is what she's up against. And this is what she overcomes. It's really, really great. Yeah, exactly. But this is where we get Lecter's escape. Now, this is an iffy part of the film. What? How have they gone from having Lecter in this glass cell, you know, with virtually no interaction to this bars in this middle of this room, these two cops, these two singular cops just looking after him. Yeah, we'll just cruise on in. Here's your meal. No one else is there to look after him. Kind of dropping the ball there. I mean, they do, but thought he was handcuffed. Really? I mean, this isn't going to be his home, is it? I thought they were just like They are transferring him. Yeah, they could have done, him. maybe have 50 people around him. Everyone knows how bad Maybe he is. just leave him on the fucking trolley. Like, yes. he's a serial killer who eats people. <laughs> yep. Do exactly. not take him out of that straight jacket. <laughs> yep, I completely agree. He has no rights. No. They can do what they want with him. <laughs> Why take him out of it? But these yeah, these cops, they're, they're, they're terrible. They're just so accommodating to him. All right, Dr. Lecter, time for your dinner. Stand over there. We'll just come in and just uh, muck, muck around for a little bit. We'll move your pictures out of respect. It's okay. Just, oh, I don't I don't understand. Uh, great shot here, though, of him beating the cop with the baton. 
It's like he's dancing with it almost. And because this is another benefit of being all in white, the blood splatters yes. stand out so much more. You can see the joy in his face at and just every exhale. swing. Yeah, every swing he does it. <sighs> yeah, he it's loves it. It's so good. And it's very graphic. Like even, And it's not the level of blood or anything that makes it graphic because by today's standards, it's, it's yeah, not, that's not, that's not that's violent. No. But Hopkins' performance makes it so vicious. Yeah. You, this character you've been set up for for the last, I don't know, um, hour and a half, hmm. you know he's capable of doing this. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's frightening. Especially yeah. when that when he leans down and that handcuff goes around his hand, the cop, <laughs> and you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. What did you think of the whole actual escape plan here? Do you remember your first time you saw it? Did you think it was him? I don't remember. I I have some vague recollection that I didn't know it was him for a little while and, mm. until, you know, maybe the, when they actually get into the ambulance that, oh, that's actually like that. Watching it now, I mean, obviously I know what happened, but even looking at the body on the ground, it looks like Lecter. But I must say, this reveal, when he takes that face off in the ambulance and you get Lecter's sinister-looking face behind that paramedic, it's fantastic. It is. And you can see on the heart monitor, it's at 84. Yeah. Because previously, Chilton said to Clarice when he attacked the nurse, his heart rate never got over 85. (laughs) Nice little little touch. It is. And that's pretty much done for Lecter oh, no, until the last couple of minutes. We don't see him for like another half an hour. His story's basically done. Yeah. He's given his information to Clarice. It's all about Buffalo Bill now. We would be remiss to do a Silence of the Lambs breakdown and not mention one of the greatest manginas of all time. <laughs> Dean, I'm not going to say what he said. Oh, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even tucked in yet, Hendo. <laughs> Buffalo Bill says a line here. My question to you is... (laughs) But you get this mixed in with Catherine trying to get this fucking dog down the well here. Kind of works well here. I mean, it's great that she gets the dog. Yeah. It it, it puts Bill on the edge, obviously. And it gets him a bit frazzled because what we got coming up here is a knock on the door. It is. And this is one of the greatest bait and switches I've ever seen. Yeah. You think, without a doubt... Holy shit, the FBI are going here. Like, I know in hindsight you can say, well, obviously it's Clarice that's going to fuck. No, I, didn't, I, don't, I wouldn't even say that. But at the time, my first viewing watching this, they knock, you see, what's his name, James Gum, yep. react to the knock. He goes upstairs, yep, someone's knocking on his door. FBI are there, opens the door, and to reveal little old Clarice Starling standing there. Because she's she's at that house to talk about, to find someone who used to live there in relation to Buffalo Bill. Yeah. Yeah, so you're not actually expecting her... Like, you say that it's obvious that it... Now, you look at it. I don't think it is. Like, even when I watch it for a third time, I don't think it's obvious that this is going to happen. Okay. I mean, I hope it's not. No, it's not. And It's what, just hard because... Said, like, and because it's so great and so memorable, I'll never forget this knock and open to Clarice. Yeah. I, I know that's coming. And I know it's fantastic. Even that line from Crawford that, Clarice, when he realises... Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic here. It's always good to be in on what's happening and the the person you're watching isn't. Mm. Like, you know what's happening and she has no idea yet. Yeah, and this discussion that she has with him in the house is so suspenseful. Yeah, terrifying. And even, like, before she starts noticing, like, the butterflies and that, you see, like, the camera pans just a little bit, like, to the right and you see a a portrait of a butterfly on the wall behind Mm. her. Mm. So after she's pulled the gun out and Bill's run off into this somewhere in this house, she gets down to where Catherine is being held and she sees her holding this white fluffy dog, which very much could symbolize the lamb that she herself tried to save. Wow. I know. It's impressive. <laughs> okay. 
What? That's not a stretch. <laughs> no, your overdramatic monologue you just did. <laughs> was a pretty short monologue. And scene. <laughs> <laughs> Give me that Oscar. <laughs> How good is it when she's like, you're safe now, someone's coming to help you, and she runs off and she's like, don't leave me here, you fucking bitch. <laughs> yeah, but when you see her going around this house, trying to find Bill, frightened as hell, with no backup, there's like, the butterflies are flapping around, the music's playing, I mean, it's so nerve-wracking, I, I couldn't keep my eyes off the screen. It's mm, When he's reaching out. Oh, okay, night. so at this point when the lights- No, go- you talk. No, well, you're talking about something that's happening and coming up. Okay. Yeah, so now let's get to that. Okay, so we got the night vision back on. The lights go off. Yep. She starts to freak out. And then, yeah, the same shot as we got earlier on. Yeah. The eyes and then the night vision. And that sound, that bleep, as it comes on. Oh, chilling shit. Just having Buffalo Bill follow her around, like, as she slowly creeps around in the pitch black, you know, scared out of her mind. And, like, he toys with her. You see, like, she, he goes to mm. touch her. Stop it, Hendo. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to show me what he does. <laughs> and then you see the gun come up in the point of view. And you're like, how is she going to get out of this? Mm. And we didn't mention earlier in the training montage how she she's just doing like that fake drug bust. And they, they get her like, you didn't check your surroundings. You didn't, you know, you didn't instinctively get that click like of the gun. Comes back here. She's learned it from her mistakes. You get that click and she quickly flings around and unloads into him. Yeah, doesn't hesitate. Uh, does she's not hesitate. Her. And, you know, that's what you get for fucking around, Buffalo Bill. Don't toy. Don't toy around. Yeah, no, he's definitely having a bit of fun with her, but didn't work too, out, did bit it? Bit too cocky. Yeah. So she graduates. We've already spoken about her and Crawford and their mutual respect, the handshake. But then, even the line, "Your father would be proud." You know, bring that father yeah, back into it. Yeah. You know, really reiterate that. Yeah, you know, he is somewhat of a father figure to her. But you get this phone call. <laughs> Great ending here. To have these two have their one last moment on the phone here again. Another iconic quote. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Yeah, it is. And we end with Lecter following Chilton down the road, just so casually. Hmm. does show that even though they succeeded in killing and getting rid of this evil, they have also let out another evil in the process. Hmm. And he's out into the open. Free to kill again. Yes. Any last words? Dean, final thoughts. For me, this film is fantastic. The acting stands out like there's no tomorrow. As we've said, Anthony Hopkins, just insanely good. And Jodie Foster, also, also so, so great. She holds her own up against this Goliath of a performance. And it's it's impressive. The direction is fantastic. The score is... I mean, it's not overly memorable. Like, I couldn't tell you the score now, but... When you're watching it, it fits the movie so well. For me, I had this film at a four and a half going in and watching it, but on a rewatch, it is definitely bumped up to... Amazing. Amazing. Incredible. Outstanding. For me. Hendo, final thoughts. So this is the third time I've seen this film, and it still holds up to the level I put it on from the first two times. This movie is fantastic. It's an intense and catch-gripping thriller with some career-best performances from... Jodie Foster, and Anthony Hopkins, who in particular is simply phenomenal as the astute yet maniacally menacing Hannibal Lecter. Their interactions and how they feed off each other are some of the best parts of the film. Jonathan Demme has done an amazing job here too with the direction he took this film and easily deserves his Oscar. The script is smart and precise, but doesn't make itself too over-intelligent for its audience. You can easily follow the story along and not miss a beat. 
The serial killer manhunt in Buffalo Bill is haunting and great. Ted Levine is incredible in the role, and the ultimate climax of this film is simply bone-chilling. This movie is just a 10 out of 10 from start to finish, one of the best out there, and obviously gets our... Amazing. Amazing. Incredible. Outstanding. From me. I was the best because the crowd loved me. All right, Dean, where does this sit on your rankings? Well, currently I have eight films that I would give five stars to. We'll start from the top. It is not as good as Once Upon a Time in America or La La Land or The Matrix or Kill Bill. Is it as good as Donnie Darko? No, it is not. Nor is it as good as Saving Private Ryan. Then we get to Die Hard. Is it better than Die Hard? Honestly, it's pretty close, but I just can't get over how rewatchable Die Hard is. Does that have anything to do with our Die Hard month we've been doing here? (laughs) Well, it doesn't help Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> but I actually would put it above uh, my current number eight, The Terminator. So that's where it will sit. My new number eight film, Silence of the Lambs. What about you? All right, I have 11 films with a five star right now. Let's go from there. It's better than The Terminator, The Prestige, Your Name, The Wizard of Oz. It's better than La La Land. It's better than Toy Story. It's better than Die Hard. Is it better than No Country for Old Men? Yes. Yes, it is. Wow, very high for you. Is it better than Saving Private Ryan? Mm, no, it's not. Okay. So I'm going to put The Silence of the Lambs at number four on my list. Very good. The Epic Film Guys podcast is a film comedy podcast with two best friends celebrating everything we love about going to the movies. We've got great beer, amazing guests, and quirky characters unlike anything you've ever heard before. Well, I just assumed you were drinking that chocolate stout that you were going to make with the cheapest crap chocolate ice cream in a Miller Lite. I remember being a young man and my mother telling me I didn't have a name because I was illegitimate. I don't know what that word means. <laughs> Never be sorry on the Epic Film Guys podcast. Never be sorry. C- cut in, talk over. I'm sorry every time I finish out. doing an episode. I didn't hear that, Nick. Don't bring it up yet. I'm not supposed to come out till like the end of the episode. Subscribe to the Epic Film Guys on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, or your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you at the movies. Hey, listeners. We just want to take a quick second to thank you all for taking the time out of your day to come and listen to us banter on about movies and all things movie-related. Yeah, it really does mean a lot to the both of us. We're always looking to improve our show, to get our name out there, and there are a couple of ways you could help us. Yeah, one of the easiest ways is to just get the word of mouth out there. You know, let your family and friends know about the show and where they can find us, which is pretty much everywhere. Places like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and all the other podcast catches you can search for. We're probably on there. And hey, if you find one we're not on, let us know so we can fix it. You can contact us on Twitter at IMDB Journey, our Facebook page at facebook.com slash IMDB Journey, our Letterboxd page at letterboxd.com slash IMDB Journey, or you can email us at imdbjourney at gmail.com. Exactly. Another way to help us out is to leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes for us. And Dean, we got a lovely review here recently from Three Girls, Two Dogs. This is one of my absolute favorite podcasts. The hosts are fair with their rankings, and the banter is just hilarious. I never fail to enjoy the show, and I always laugh. Their reviews are thorough, and the -the behind-the-scenes trivia I learn is awesome. I highly recommend this podcast to any movie fan. Thank you very much. Thank you. Or if you're really loving the content and are looking for more, then why not check out our Patreon, where we post another weekly show, breaking down other films not on the IMDb Top 250. 
Yeah, that's right. What have we got coming up this week, Kendo? Well, Dean, we're halfway through our Die Hard month, and we're just about to release our breakdown on Die Hard 4.0, or Live Free or Die Hard. Yes, we are. It'd be interesting to hear what we have to say compared to the last two. Yeah, it's definitely... uh. Well, the original trilogy was one thing and then they sort of reinvigorated or tried to reinvigorate it a bit. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, head on over to patreon.com slash imdbjourney and check out the myriad of rewards and benefits we have to offer. Actually, speaking of Die Hard, as we've mentioned before, this is our Die Hard month. So we have done a couple of guest spots recently. You and I were both on the Film Inquiry Podcast Network with John Mark Junkins for Junk About Movies, where we basically did... A big discussion about Die Hard again, which tied perfectly to us having our one-year anniversary on Die Hard with the first one we ever did. No, it all worked out very well this year. (laughs) Yeah. And I kind of, I kind of was on the Movie Reviews with 20Q's podcast. Spoiler alert, he really wasn't. Yeah, go and listen to it over there. You will definitely hear my voice at some point. Yeah, and don't even listen to it for us. Um, Sam and Stacey at Movie Reviews in 20Qs have a great podcast, and they're joined by two of my f- personal favourite podcasters, Gidget Von LaRue from the Retro Cinema Podcast and Paul from the Countdown Podcast. Yeah, a very highly entertaining episode from everyone who was in there. Your guide to cinema etiquette for the Countdown Movie and TV Reviews Podcast. Tip 43. When attending the cinema with your good friends or significant other, don't assume anyone else has any interest in what you have to say. So, always remember... Whisper, fuckface. It's not rocket science. For more useful cinema etiquette, join Paul and Wayne on the Countdown Movie and TV Reviews podcast at Podomatic on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. All right, let's get into... We may still have mail. Mail, mail, mail. Here it is. And this oh. could be it. Oh... And we actually got a fair few reviews for The Silence of the Lambs this week. Got heaps. Yeah. Let's go over to our Twitter account. Matt Fish says, It's one of those rare films where, as a writer, I love the script but dislike how the movie came together. Some of the acting and editing is problematic for me. Wow. How can you complain about the acting in this film? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I completely agree with you, Dean. From Lucy Goes to Hollywood, my favourite film of all time. Nice. Just stunning. Nice. Julio over at The Contrarian says, It wasn't until I rewatched it a while ago that it hit me how much it is actually about Foster's struggle to be taken seriously as a woman stuck in an FBI sausage fest. <laughs> From Gidget Von LaRue, giving us the absolute most necessary information we need <laughs> about the Sansa Lambs. Here we go. Buffalo Bill's dog, Precious, is the exact same dog used in the burbs that Walter owns, Queenie. Solid review, Thank Gidget. you. Thank you, Gidget. You really... <laughs> Paint a picture of how you feel about this film. Orville's Wedding said Jonathan Demi managed to sneak in his usual cast of extras and random directors and unusual small parts without pulling us out of the story. Well done. From patron Ben Mulverhill, a classic worthy of all the acclaim it gets. A chilling atmosphere, legendary performances, and a captivating story. Gets five stars from me. Nice. You and me both, Ben. You and me both. Me too. From Tom Schutzer, one of the few Best Picture Oscar winners that actually lives up to the hype. Truly extraordinary. I do wish I could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Thanks, Tom. That was good. (laughs) And another one here from patron Chris. Jonathan Demme's Silence of the Lambs is a masterclass in suspense and horror. The cast of Jodie Foster, Anthony Held, Ted Levine, and always reliable Stick... Scott Glenn, apparently, are all fantastic. Stick from uh, 
Marvel's Daredevil on Netflix. Okay, I know nothing has about that. No idea what's nothing is. about that. <laughs> but the true beast of this film is Anthony Hopkins as the endlessly charismatic and horrifying Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who deservedly won the Oscar, even with the lesser quality of the sequel and prequel that followed. This film, Hopkins' performance always remains strong. Not to take anything away from Ted Levine's Buffalo Bill, who is just as equally menacing as the Cannibal Doctor. But whenever I hear the song Goodbye Horses, I can't help but picture Buffalo Bill swaying back and forth while doing the tuck. Truly haunting. <laughs> My excellent is Hannibal Lecter escaping from his cell. The patience with his murders is really disturbing. Silence of the Lambs is a fantastic thriller that seems to get better with age. Thanks, Chris. Great review. But our last one here is from... Shane! When I first saw this film as a teen, I remember being disappointed because there was no mystery element to the proceedings. The identity of Buffalo Bill isn't where the film chooses to surprise the audience. As an adult, I appreciate that this isn't a murder mystery, but rather a tense psychological thriller. Jodie Foster is A-grade excellent as up-and-coming FBI trainee Clarice Starling, but of course it is Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter who steals the show. His portrayal of this character has crafted one of the most iconic villains in cinematic history. For as deranged and disgusting a serial killer he is, he is also deviously charming and intelligent. The back and forth between he and Starling are the best part of the movie. At times it feels like they're playing chess with one another. Physically, Starling and the FBI have the upper hand, as he's in captivity. But from a mental standpoint, Lecter is the master. Adjacent to this is the plot around Buffalo Bill, who is behind the kidnapping of a senator's daughter, as well as the slaying of several other women. The police procedural is realistic, intriguing, and tense. From a directorial standpoint, the film is well-made and hasn't aged. To be honest, there aren't a lot of serial killer films that are up to this standard. In the pecking order, it's a little behind Seven, as this goes down a more conventional and mainstream path. But both the classics and no other film in the Hannibal series comes close to matching the work here. The tone and atmosphere is just much better than the others. Thanks, Shane. Thank you very much, Shane. Awesome. All right, let's get into... That's my question! The question, jerk! Where we asked you, what is your favourite serial killer movie? All right, let's take a look at a couple of responses here from Jenny, Seven, or Taking Lives? From the Tasteless Podcast... Oh boy, didn't realise I loved the serial killer genre so much. Silence of the Lambs and Copycat. The Who Who Ho podcast said Frailty. Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss says Silence of the Lambs. Kevin Kendrick said American Psycho is a great one. Woke me up to Christian Bale. I think it woke most people up to Christian Bale. (laughs) (laughs) From Kevin Brackett, how about Man Bites Dog? I have not seen that. I don't think I've heard of it. Pretty sure I've heard of it. I just haven't seen it. Okay. Steve from the Everything I Learned from Movies podcast said, Henry, portrait of a serial killer with Michael Rooker is great. Matt Neglia at the Next Best Picture podcast. It's got to be seven for me. Great characters, a dark setting, twisted writing with an unforgettable ending. Well said. From patron Shane, Jeffrey took a couple of watches, but Saw takes out the prize for me. The music at the end as the killer is finally revealed sends shivers down my spine every time I watch it. From JD at the In Session Film podcast, M is pretty spectacular. Can't disagree with you there. I don't know if I've seen it. No, you did. I, I made did. you watch is it. Is that the one with the crazy person? What is? What kind of question is that? Is that the one with the serial killer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair point. <laughs> 
from the Man Brain Podcast, Natural Born Killers for Robert Downey Jr.'s perfect Australian accent. I had no idea Robert Downey Jr. was in that film. Really? I think he plays like some sort of journalist. Have you seen it? No. Me neither. From Jimmy Roberts, it's got to be Halloween. Does anything else compare? Clearly something does. From the Friends Talking Nerdy Podcast, I'd go with the classic Psycho. Anthony Perkins was an amazing, underrated actor. From Mike, Mark and Oscar, best, The Silence of the Lambs. Favourite has to be Zodiac, though. John Pearson said I liked Copycat. From Sal Krichowski, Dirty Harry, of course. And our last one here from Amelia, Monster. That film changed my life. I had never witnessed a performance like that before, and there is still no performance that has moved me in such a way as Theron's did. Hmm. Fair enough. I thank you, everyone, for your answers there, and to everyone else who we didn't read out. But, Dean, let's get into our top five serial killer movies. All right, Dean, kick it off. What's your number five? My number five is Psycho. Starting off strong here. That is my number five as well. Well, here we go. What is your number four? My number four is American Psycho. <laughs> oh, my God. Put it, put it on the board. American Psycho is my number four. Uh, I think this next one will be different. My number three is The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I think this is where the, the only change we'll have here. My number three is Saw. Yeah, my number two is Saw. And my number two is The Silence of the Lambs. And we have the same number Obviously, one. Obviously, it is seven. It is seven. I think we have far too similar tastes in serial killer movies. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. Well, I mean, it's right. <laughs> <laughs> And in the spirit of this week's Golden Globe nominations that have just come out, question of the week for next week is going to be, what is your favourite Golden Globe winner in the musical or comedy category? Yeah, we wanted to do the musical comedy instead of the drama because most of the dramas are the Oscars best picture, which I'm sure we'll do on another question. Yeah, so that will be our top five as well for next week. All right, let's take a look at the results of our Pod V Pod X, where we drafted romantic movie couples against Billy and Topher from We Watched a Thing. Now, this was a blind movie draft. We were team one. Yep. Which was Han and Leia from Star Wars, Harry and Sally from When Harry Met Sally, Nora and Ellie from The Notebook, Jack and Rose from Titanic, Sam and Molly from Ghost, Belle and the Beast from Beauty and the Beast, Romeo and Juliet from Romeo and Juliet, Jack and Ennis from Brokeback Mountain, Clark Kent and Lois Lane from Superman, Patrick and Cat from 10 Things I Hate About You. And team two, which was Billy and Topher at We Watched a Thing, had Wesley and Buttercup from The Princess Bride, Jesse and Celine from The Before Films, Rick and Ilsa from Casablanca, Joel and Clementine from Eternal Sunshine on the Spotless Mind, Shrek and Fiona from the Shrek franchise, Maria and Captain Von Trapp from The Sound of Music, Sharon and Kevin from Moonlight, Carl and Ali from Up, Indiana Jones and Marion from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Cher and Josh from Clueless. Now let's take a look at a couple of responses here. Julio, the contrarian, said, We watched a thing, killed it. Selena and Jesse, Sharon and Kevin, Carl and Ali... Also, IMDb Journey get penalised for not specifying which Clark and Lois. Pretty sure I did. Julio, look at the picture. It clearly says Superman. There is only one film called Superman. From Flix X-Raid, gotta vote IMDb Journey. Mostly because of the terrible couple that is Joel and Clementine from We Watched a Thing. As well as the emotionally stunted couple of Sharon and Kevin from Moonlight. Damn. Brutal. But accurate. From our good buddy, John Mark Junkins, it pains me to pick against Jesse and Celine, but top to bottom, IMDb Journey has the most iconic romances. From 8 Minute Cape Code, IMDb Journey is good, but We Watched a Thing is just a total powerhouse. Well, high praise there. All right, let's take a look at the results, Dean. 70 votes later, 
53% to the IMDb Journey podcast. We're back. <laughs> it's nice to be back on the winner's list. Yeah, it felt good seeing that. Thank you, everyone who voted out there. Commiserations once again to Billy and Tofa. We did have a lot of fun, though. Yeah, absolutely did. Okay, let's get into the final four of our best 1940s film tournament. We're there already. It was so quick. <laughs> First match here, we have It's a Wonderful Life versus Citizen Kane. Second up, we have Casablanca taking on The Great Dictator. So we'll put those matches up 24 hours after we release the episode, and we'll see which two are going to make it to the finals, the grand final. Of the 1940s. Yeah. Riveting. Get, get excited. <laughs> so, what's next? All right, Dean, it's time to find out what film we're going to be watching next. Let's hit that. No, wait. We're doing something different. Something that we've t- talked about heading into our second year. We're going to go back and forth now, and we're going to be choosing a film. Yes, we are. As much as we love randomizing it, we also do not love randomizing it. <laughs> and we like we having would, some control. We would rather be picking them. So, obviously, we need to be smart about this. We're not just going to bang out all our five-star <laughs> films from the last ten years and make a really boring and repetitive show. But it is on us to mix it up yes. and not just pick our favorites, but pick films that maybe... I think for me personally, I'll probably start by picking films that I just really want you to rewatch. <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to be picking. There, there'll be certain films I'm picking. I'm going to try and mix it up. I'm going to, every once in a while, pick one that I absolutely love. I'm going to pick one that I haven't seen in a very long time and I really want to rewatch it again. And there's going to be some films that uh, I'm going to pick that you haven't even seen. That being said, our next breakdown is going to be released on Christmas Eve. So we decided what better movie to have us break down than It's a Wonderful Life. Why not? Let's get in the uh, spirit of things. Yeah, exactly. So, in a fortnight, we will bring you our breakdown of It's a Wonderful Life. So, listeners, thank you very much for listening, as you do. Dean, any movies you've seen so far that we're going to be discussing next week? I say that to you because I have seen zero (laughs) this week. I I think I'm in the same boat. I watched two seasons of Sick Note with uh, Rupert Grint. I've watched a couple of Die Hard movies, and I've watched nothing else. Yeah, I don't think I've watched a movie. I haven't been to the cinemas in a while, actually, now. Probably should get back into that. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll have some movies to talk about next week, I'm sure of it. Undoubtedly. But next week, we'll have our next guest for our Pod v Pod 11. Should be another riveting time. So until then, we will see you next week for Pod v Pod 11. Bye. Bye.